few years ago, Warren and I were driving through a rural area on a sunny Oregon summer day, and I was watching the pastures in the forest go by and noticed that all the vegetation seemed so dull and brownish and beyond its prime. The grass and trees appeared to be half dead. And this was before we started noticing the effects of climate change on our forests. But it left me feeling a little melancholy. And then the sun was overtaken by clouds, so I took my sunglasses off. And suddenly, everything looked green and vital and alive again. I had new sunglasses with reddish tint, and, it hadn't, and I hadn't realized until then how much they filtered what I was seeing. And that's what I'd like to talk about today, how each of us sees the world through a lens that acts as a filter, and we may not realize how that's affecting what we see and what we think is real. Years ago, I was in an ongoing small group, sort of like a covenant group, with a woman who frequently got into all kinds of trouble because she had a tendency to lose her temper easily. When asked why she so often responded that way, she replied, that's just the way I am. I was born that way. And I remember wondering at the time if she really had been born with such a hot temper or if it was something her brain had learned. The discussion about nature versus nurture has been going on for centuries. And along the way, we've learned a lot about what's controlled by our DNA and what's determined by our environment, our families, our culture. But recently, that discussion has become much more complicated. Just looking at the DNA side of things, we used to think DNA determined who we are, like a blueprint. It's printed right there in all those base pairs, and that's it, who we are. More recently, we found that DNA by itself can't do much of anything. In a living cell, DNA always exists surrounded by a jungle of associated proteins. In a soup of buzzing activity, these proteins make up our epigenetics. Epi is a Greek prefix meaning over or beyond. Our epigenetic proteins are the master regulators of our DNA. You can think of DNA as a fixed chemical code, but our epigenetics, epigenetics change throughout our lives. Actually, they change throughout our days. These special proteins are intimately linked to our environment, our lifestyle, our diet, our exercise, our sleep, our relationships. Do we smoke? Are we relaxed or under stress? These can all affect what's going on in our cells at a fundamental level. All this epigenetic stuff manipulates our DNA and controls which switches are turned on or off, determining whether those genes are being expressed or not. Now, I'm not really here to talk about genetics and epigenetics today, as amazing as that story is, but I wanted to point out that even at the cellular level, at the DNA level, we are, to a large degree, a product of our environment and experiences, which make a difference in who we are by changing what goes on even in our cells. Those experiences also affect what goes on in our brains. It's the brain level that I want to talk about today. Our brains are among the most complex features of the entire universe, as far as we know with networks of something like 86 billion neurons and perhaps hundreds of trillions or even quadrillions of connections, depending on who you listen to. Our brains, when we're born, are not completely programmed. 
and we immediately start learning from our parents, our family, our surroundings, and our brain continues programming itself from all those experiences. Until pretty recently, however, we thought this programming was mostly finished by the time we were adults. Now we know that our brain continues throughout our lives to be a system constantly adapting to the world around it. Maybe it slows down a little bit as we get older, but it doesn't stop rewiring its circuitry. All our experiences feed into our brain with the potential to change its architecture and how its resources are used. Whatever we give our attention to, whatever we practice, literally rewires our brains. The more we practice something, or the more we give our attention to something, and especially the emotional intensity of our attention, determine how strong that pathway and its network of connections becomes. Whether we're giving our attention to a philosophical discussion, a relationship, a video game, learning to cook, or practicing pickleball or piano. If you're learning to play the piano, for example, at first, there's a lot of conscious thought. You see a note on the page. You consciously think about which finger on which key and how long to hold the note. As you practice, the associations in your brain get stronger. Eventually, the printed note will be the cue that automatically sends the right message to the right finger, right? Luna says it's true. <laughs> There's an axiom called Hebb's rule. It says neurons that fire together, wire together. If neuron A fires just before neuron B fires again and again, their connection is strengthened. They release more neurotransmitters and that action becomes more automatic. Our, your brain then can then concentrate on other facets of the music or the pickleball. Brain scans show that highly trained concert musicians who spend hours each day practicing end up with brains that have become specially organized. And even an untrained eye can see that their scans are different from non-musicians' brains and vary depending on what instrument they spend their lives practicing. And it turns out it's not just repetitive practice or exposure to something that molds our brain circuits. Motivation makes a difference. We develop stronger brain pathways from experiences that have relevance, that matter to us. The emotional intensity of the experience is an important factor. As a young child, we're rewarded for making the right associations. We learn to associate a cow with the sound moo, and we develop stronger, uh, we receive emotional rewards from our parents if we see a cow and we say moo. The brain associates, associates things that commonly coincide. And the building of the brain pathways usually occurs like that, slowly and gradually building on one thing after another. But of course, there are also times when it only takes one trial to make a strong association. If an experience has a great deal of relevance to us and a high emotional impact, our brain releases lots of chemical messengers that make it easier for the brain changes to take place. A strong pathway is created immediately. It might be a positive or joyful experience that feels important or exciting. It makes us curious and we're immediately engaged. On the other hand, a negative experience can also leave a strong imprint on our brain. If we touch a hot stove, it results in pain. We don't need to repeat that experience 
to build a strong association in our brain. The next time we sense that we're about to touch something hot, we may jerk back. And our senses may even become hypersensitive. If we have any reason to think that a surface might be hot, we might react that way as if it were hot. There are lots of other painful or traumatic experiences that quickly form strong brain associations. A few years ago, an investigative journalist named Charles Duhigg wrote a book called The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. He wrote about how our habits form, how we can break old habits and make new ones, how habits shape our lives and how we can have more control and shape our habits instead. He pointed out that each habit starts with a cue, something that sets your brain off down a particular familiar response pathway. Cue, response. If you can learn to recognize the cue and make an intervention at that point, you've made the process conscious rather than automatic. And that's what you have to do to change a habit. But of course, if you've reacted to that cue with a given response, hundreds and hundreds of times, that's a pretty strong pathway to try to replace with something new. He didn't say it would be easy. These habitual ways of responding often make up a lot of our lives. There's a cue and we respond. And we think we're responding to the real world, but actually a lot of it's coming out of our brains. If you happen to see the PBS series not long ago about the brain on the NOVA program, you've already been, been introduced to some of this. None of us form our perceptions based on what's objectively true about the world. Our senses take samples of the world around, around us, small bits of information, and then our brains fit the pieces together in a way that makes sense to us. Then our brains fill in the blanks in the actual samples between the samples. How does the brain fill in those blanks from our past experience? Our brains are superb at filling in the gaps, making us think we're seeing the entire world when we're really only taking little samples. Why do we have brains that do that? Well, for our survival, evolution provided us with a brain that would quickly sample our current situation and predict what's about to come. Our brains tend to show us what we expect to see. Predictive brains were an evolutionary advantage. Didn't matter that they weren't totally accurate all the time. It was more of an advantage to be predictive. It's a lot like our computer software that auto-completes our words, or like Facebook's algorithms that filter what we get to see. It's our past experiences filling in the content. This would be a good place to point out that our past experiences are not saved in our memories as factual videos of what actually happened. What our brains store is actually our interpretations at the time of what happened then. Our sequences of cue response today come from what our brains made of an experience in the past. And our emotions at that time play a big role in that, how that experience affects us now. And what gets saved in our brain connections as experience is not even limited to what actually happened directly to us. It can include experiences we assimilated from people we're close to, family, friends, folks we had a strong connection with at the time. What happened to them becomes part of our experience bank. 
but it didn't even have to be a real experience. We assimilate experiences from books and movies and video games and even from our own fantasies. Advertising and misinformation can also become part of our experience banks. Imagine the experience bank being built up in the brain of someone who spends hours every week playing violent video games. Or the experience banks of someone constantly exposed to misinformation. Their brain's automatic pathways react as if it's all real. And military personnel returning from real threats in hellish battle zones often find they can't turn off the automatic pathways their brains have built for survival that continue to tell them they're under threat. The effects of our brain's plasticity are not always positive, but what we know now about the brain can make it easier for us to understand PTSD and similar problems. We can also start to imagine what it feels like to be a marginalized person who's found themselves in truly threatening situations again and again. Continuing to have to react to real dangers form stronger and stronger associations in our brains and can have serious life and health consequences. Some people may become hypersensitive to perceived danger and may feel the need to try to control every situation they find themselves in because that's the only way they can feel safe. It may be hard for them to have normal relationships with others because they have trouble trusting the people around them. And it can be challenging to try to be a friend to someone whose current perceptions are so often overwhelmed by past experience. The stories we tell ourselves about our experiences affect who we are and how we interact with others and how we make decisions about what is real. In 2019, psychologist Jer, or Jeremy Clifton, wrote an article in Psychology Today summarizing conclusions of an international research team that questioned thousands of people in various parts of the world about what kind of world they thought they lived in. The data was used to categorize people's basic beliefs about the world. And these beliefs could be clustered into three main groups. The first is, is the world a safe place or a dangerous place? Clifton says those who see the world as safe see a world mostly of cooperation, comfort, stability, and few threats. Those who see the world as dangerous see a world of misery, decay, brutality, and dangers of all sorts. Secondly, enticing versus dull. Clifton said those who see the world as enticing see it as a beautiful place with potential treasure behind every corner. Those who see the world as dull see an ugly and boring world where exploration is unlikely to be rewarded. And third, alive versus mechanistic. Those who see the universe as alive see life as a relationship with an active universe, as a kind of conversation with that universe. Those who see the world as mechanistic see the universe as a mindless machine that we're thrust into the middle of. These primal beliefs, as Clifton called them, have a huge influence on our behavior. If we see the world through a lens that says it's primarily a safe place, we tend to be trusting and easily cooperate with other people. If we see the world as full of threats, then we're always on guard reacting to those perceived threats. 
a lot of our quality of life depends on our lens, qualities like our health and well-being. How we view politics, democracy, economics, as well as our views of human beings in general come through these lenses. Of course, we've probably all met someone who's had a charmed, privileged life but still sees the world as a terrible place. And someone else who has not had any lucky breaks at all who sees the world as wondrous. It comes down to how their brains have interpreted their experiences. So we've built up a way of seeing the world, the stories we tell ourselves, and a lens that filters everything we see according to our interpretations, which may not be entirely conscious, of past experiences that may not have actually happened the way we remember them. And on that, we base our interactions with everyone else. It's a wonder human beings can find any harmony at all. In a world of knee-jerk responses, people often don't take the time to think about why we all see the world so differently. Over the last couple of years, Reverend Ben has tried to give this congregation the chance to learn about and explore each other's lenses by holding heart-to-heart -heart conversations and other gatherings to share our stories. He's encouraged us to examine our own response patterns, and again and again, we've had opportunities to practice modifying those old patterns to build new patterns in our brains so we can actually stop and hear each other. Better understanding of the lenses of others allows us all to benefit from more rich, diverse perspectives. As a church, it helps us to maintain a safer space for each other as a community of compassion. If you were here last week, you heard Scott Lindstrom talk about the importance of being responsible for our own stories. I think part of that responsibility includes becoming more aware of our own lenses so that we can gain a perspective that allows us to be more aware of and accountable for our responses to each other and could lead us to a more positive, productive way of being together as a community. Having brains that rewire themselves according to our experiences provides us with challenges in getting along with each other since we're literally not seeing the same world. But the same plasticity also provides us with the opportunity to become more conscious of our own lenses and the lenses of those around us and to learn new perspectives to understand each other. Thank you.